I was appalled after getting off the plane in Los Angeles on uh, Saturday night to be shown this new American stamp, 45 cents, commemorating the French Revolution. My, my, what has happened to the United States? President Adams counseled the French radical Brissot to restrain <coughs> Frenchmen from triggering up the French Revolution in 1789. Uh, but it seems several presidents later, we have the U.S. Mail actually advertising to the world that the French Revolution was a good thing. If you can figure that out, you're smarter than I am. <coughs> now, what is the French Revolution and, <coughs> excuse me, where did it start? I suppose we can <coughs> start looking at it from about, <coughs> excuse me, 1700 A.D. onward. At that time, Protestantism throughout Europe had grown lukewarm, um, latitudinarian, uh, and supernaturalistic. Now, to put that into plain American, <coughs> that means that the cutting edge of um, salvation had become blunted and it had become very respectable and middle class simply to attend Protestant worship services in most parts of Europe at that time and to be a nice person without needing to be born again. And <clears throat> this led to a number of reactions from about 1700 onward. First of all, in Germany, there was the so-called German Enlightenment, the Aufklärung. People like Immanuel Kant uh, and um, Wolf and Leibniz, which speedily led to a situation that if Christianity is worth anything at all, it's got to be ethical. Now, of course, Christianity should be ethical, but if Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice is not in the middle of things, then, of course, we've missed the boat. Well, it wasn't long when this cooling off of Christianity from Germany had radiated out next door to France. And um, in France, there was a development of um, philosophy more and more without reference to Almighty God. Few names are very familiar, and all of them crop up later in the French Revolution. Uh, there was the thinker Delamatrie, who said, Man is a machine. Man is not the image of God, but man is a machine. So if you lubricate the machine properly, like they do at Hughes Aircraft Factory, I suppose, then it'll work properly. Of course, man is much more than a machine, but this idea caught on. There were other thinkers who were a lot more radical than he. Uh, I think of the um, agnostic and sometimes atheistic French thinkers, especially from about uh, uh, 1750 onward, people like Diderot, d'Alembert, and d'Orbach, who decided to write an encyclopedia. They said, hey, let's write an encyclopedia that will discuss everything under the sun for the French people. Uh, but it's to be an encyclopedia without reference to Almighty God. Now, this is very important, because although it's awful hard to believe it today when you look at the recent editions of the Encyclopedia Americana, 
and particularly the Encyclopedia Britannica, believe it or not, the very first encyclopedias that were ever written were written by Bible-believing Protestants in Germany and were designed to discuss everything in the universe in terms of the Bible as the written word of God. Matter of fact, if you ever look at a first edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica, may well be the Americana too, you'll be interested to see uh, the much greater space that is given there to Christianity. You may want to look up just one item that's quite dear to my heart, Calvinism, in the first edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica, gets much more space and a much fairer treatment than it does in the most recent multi-volume edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica. So these Frenchmen rightly saw that the way to shape the next generation to think differently to the last is to bring out a new encyclopedia which can offer all branches of knowledge from a different perspective than in the past. It's awful hard for us to understand it today, but truth is, back in 1750, even in Europe, Christianity was still the number one cultural influence in the affairs of Western man. Um, as a matter of fact, the French Revolution of uh, 1789 is quite unique in that it was the first time for a thousand years, the first time for a thousand years, that any country in Europe um, got a change of government where the new government deliberately claimed that it was not under the authority of Almighty God. For a thousand years before the French Revolution, every country in Europe, even the bad governments, paid at least lip service to Jesus Christ, but not France from the French Revolution onward. Very, very important for us to understand that. And by the way, it also shows the absurdity of the mentality that would link the American Revolution of 1776 with the French Revolution of 1789. Because the mentality of the French Revolution, which was unique, <coughs> was ni dit et ni maître. There is no God and no master. Whereas the American Revolution, as you well know, believes that all men are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, etc. Well, um, a very important shaper of the French Revolution was, of course, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who pioneered the social contract theory uh, in um, France. Now, he held that everyone has a right to live according to his own personal will. He also held that um, civilization is pretty rotten, and what we all need to do is to get back to nature. He held that people need to learn to live together, and that the way they do it is first state what each one of them wants, the personal will, and then from each person stating his personal will to arrive at what he called the general will. But the moment the general will has been arrived at, that cancels out the personal will, so that you have no right to continue having a personal will 
once you've stated it, and once the commune has decided on a general will which may be quite the opposite of your will. I want to stress this, it's very important, because Lenin picked it up later in the principle of democratic centralism, which is the very basis of the Communist Party. If this were a Communist Party meeting, each one of you now should be required to state your view on whatever we're discussing, and then criticize your own view, and then we'd all take a vote on it, and once the majority vote was taken, not only must you accept the party line, but you've got to bury your personal idea forever, which you uttered before the party line was taken. So, that Leninist principle, which is a principle on which all communist parties of whatever variety throughout the world operate, is derived from this idea of the general will as developed by Rousseau. Now, Rousseau was quite an interesting fellow. He was an apostate Protestant, thoroughly apostate. At that time in France, the population was approximately 80% Roman Catholic, 20% Protestant, Presbyterian in fact. Now I always have said, and every Baptist here will say amen, I tell you as a Presbyterian uh, professor of theology, the very hottest place in hell is going to be reserved for unsaved Presbyterians. And the reason is, they know the truth of God's word much better than any other kind of Protestant. And if they turn away from it, well, hell is almost too good for them. And Rousseau was one of those kind of people. He was raised in strict Calvinism. He turned away from it, abandoned all respect for God, and went naturalist. Now, this interesting man fathered 19 illegitimate children. He spent his life saying that the society had a duty toward the poor to care for them and to, take, and to, and to uh, look after them. But he dumped all 19 of his own illegitimate children uh, in charitable institutions, some of them Roman Catholic, by the way, and expected them to take care of them. I think you see the inconsistency in the man's ethical outlook. Another very important figure is, of course, uh, Voltaire, the writer of Candide, which is raw humanism. Uh, he is often um, celebrated for the, famous ad, uh, for the famous maxim, I disagree with what you say, but I will defend to my last drop of blood your right to say it. That's a very kind assessment of Voltaire. I don't think he would have defended to his last drop of blood a Christian's right to say what is Christian. However, in a less than enlightened moment, Benjamin Franklin did take his grandchildren to Paris to be blessed by this questionable man, Voltaire. Now, I haven't got too much against Benjamin Franklin. Um, I think after Jefferson, though, he was the least acceptable of the founding fathers of the American Republic. But, on the other hand, um, I think we must say that both of those men, Jefferson and Franklin, were unorthodox, but that they had a high respect for Christianity, and unfortunately, they were too open to some other non-Christian ideas. Anyway, Benjamin Franklin and Jefferson are not the founding fathers of the American Republic, 48% uh, of whom were Bible-believing Christians that we know about. 
By the way, let me tell you something that's been erased from American history, even though my subject is a French Revolution. Um, it's often said today by revisionist American historians that the American founding fathers were not Christian. For the most part, they were deist. You've heard that, I'm sure. The fact is, though, if you take a look at the Peace Treaty of Paris of uh, 1783, uh, a facsimile of which I have seen, I once read a doctoral dissertation about this, which tried to suppress this fact that I'm going to bring out now. But the peace treaty of Paris between Great Britain and uh, the United States, whereby Great Britain recognized the independence of the United States, starts off in the name of the high and the most exalted trinity. <laughs> Hardly a deistic statement. And it is signed on behalf of the United States of America by Adams, by Jay, and by, guess who, Benjamin Franklin. So that document in itself is enough to destroy the myth that the founding fathers of America were more deist than they were Christian. Anyway, let me not get sidetracked. We're on the French Revolution and not on the American Revolution, except I sure wish the American Revolution had never, ever been called a revolution, because it wasn't. In a revolution, there's a complete turning upside down of all values. That is what happened in France. It is not what happened in, the, in America. Second, a revolution takes place very fast and without clearly seeing before you start what you want to end up with. That is the case of the French Revolution. It is not the case of the American War of Independence. If you read the American documents, it's very clear that what the uh, Englishmen living in America wanted to achieve was a reassertion of their rights under uh, English common law uh, in the name of King George uh, under the leadership of their own colonial legislatures against the usurpation of the British government in Westminster. That's what it was all about. It was a reformation and not a revolution. And one only has to read the documents in American history be between 1765 and 75 to see that that is so. Of course, when hostilities did finally break out, uh, it was then inevitable that America would become a republic for only one reason, that King George, the King of America, most unwisely quit listening to his parliamentary advisers from New England and started listening to his other parliamentary advisers in England as regards what should be happening in New England hadn't been for that, I think America would still have been a kingdom, as is Australia, under the control today, Australia, of the Queen of Australia, and her other territories beyond the seas, such as Great Britain and other less important places than Australia. Anyway, it didn't work out that way in America, but it was an assertion of the rights of American Englishmen um, rights they had always enjoyed and which were being trammeled only from 1765 onward, like the right to tax. You know, of course, that never ever before 1765 did the Parliament of England ever dream of taxing Americans. That taxing had always been undertaken by the 
uh, American colonial legislatures in respect of America. And when that change was made, that's what caused the friction. Situation in France was very, very different. Now, I must say a word or two about the Illuminati. I suppose some of you have heard about the Illuminati. Um, they were a group of wild people that hated God, that hated Jesus Christ. They were naturalistic to the core, and they were revolutionaries from the, from the uh, word go. And they plotted, through using secret societies, principally Grand Orient Freemasonry, in Western Europe, which was repudiated by English and American Freemasonry as soon as they did it, as a vehicle to further and to foment revolution in Europe, especially Southern Europe, so that they nearly brought off a successful revolution in uh, Austria and in Southern Germany, and indeed in France, where collaborating with other elements, they did succeed. These Illuminati, or enlightened ones, uh, bringing to fruition the ideas of Immanuel Kant, the architect of the later United Nations organization, world government, decided to make their power play, especially in France, where they succeeded. It was relatively easy there because before 1789, France did not have the best kind of government. True as it was that King Louis XVI, who was the monarch in France at that time, was the best monarch that France had had for many generations, uh, if not the best French king of all time, his grandfather Louis XIV had lived such an immoral life comparable only with that of Rousseau and caused so much turmoil that France was not in good shape. Except the real government of France at that time was not so much in the hands of the French king as it was in the hands of really rotten aristocrats, uh, hereditary aristocrats who had very little governmental ability, first. Second, France uh, at that time was highly centralized and it was, um, the government was being administered by a rather stupid rather uneducated and rather doctrinaire and dictatorial public service throughout France. And so this led to somewhat of an unhappy situation that made it, uh, please do come in and park yourselves. Uh, it led to a situation that made it um, relatively easy for uh, a revolution to get underway. We're talking about the French Revolution, ladies. Um, the top really blew off the whole place in 1789 when, as you know, the Bastille was opened, the hordes went marching through the streets of Paris, singing the Mayonnaise, or as I love to call it, the Marseillaise, onward to liberty or to death. You sons of France awake to glory now. But, of course, the leadership was that of um, left-wing middle-class intellectuals. You look at any revolution in history, it is never the working class that leads the revolution. Mao Zedong was thoroughly middle-class, left-wing middle-class. Joe Stalin was a dropout from uh, 
a Russian Orthodox theological seminary, and so we can go on. As a matter of fact, I know of only one communist leader who had working-class origins, and I'm sure you've never heard of him. It is the communist leader Xoxi, X-O-X-I, who was a major leader in the very minor and unimportant Tin Pot Albanian uh, Communist uh, Party. But all of the other communist leaders, including Mao's wife, uh, who, by the way, was raised in a Protestant mission station uh, in uh, China, uh, all have middle-class origins. It's as if the working class are incapable of leadership, as Marx said, until a progressive, read, left-wing uh, element of the middle class betrays the middle class and goes over to the working class and offers its leadership, then the inert working class suddenly get activated and march through the streets and burn, baby, burn. So, I believe that revolutions are made by a few intellectuals who throw um, brainless working class people as cannon fodder against the powers that they wish to topple. And I think uh, a reasonable grasp of history will bear me out there. What then happened was that um, the revolution succeeded in France and a new constitution was set up for France. That really was a pity because France, though it had a lot of problems then, was moving in the right direction toward a more representative kind of government. And three different estates were set up in the new France. The king, who was relegated to a mere fi figurehead, something like the Queen of England today. Second, there was the aristocracy, who were the real power wielders in France, but then only the progressive aristocracy. The right-wing aristocrats had to flee for their lives or face the guillotine. And third, the so-called Third Estate. Now, the Third Estate was supposed to be the relatively recently elected representatives of the French people. Uh, but the interesting thing is that the French people, who on the whole were working-class people, ended up <laughs> by being represented by middle-class elements who misrepresented the working class for their own middle-class uh, ends, and some 47% of the people's representatives of the Third Estate in the new French Parliament were middle-class bourgeois lawyers. Now, that's important. The new constitution required, it was checks and balances, just like the American constitution, that there needed to be consultation between these three elements. The king, under the new monarchy, the um, new aristocracy, somewhat radicalized, and this new element, the third estate, the people's representatives. However, something very dramatic happened real quickly, probably because of the secret societies that were now in control of the third estate. The third estate was manipulated to stand up in the French Parliament and to refuse to leave the chamber and to demand two things. Number one, that they alone, the Third Estate, constituted the only legitimate government of France. The king was no longer the government and the aristocrats weren't either. Second, that not even the people 
were to govern France, but only the people's representatives, that is, these middle-class lawyers. They were the government, and they had the mechanism to start inflicting their radical views on the rest of the population. Well, I won't go into the whole history, except to say that up till this time, France was 80% Roman Catholic, 20% Presbyterian. Very speedily, the whole of the Roman Catholic clergy found themselves forced by the new government uh, and challenged to uh, swear an oath of disallegiance to the Vatican and allegiance to the new revolutionary government in France. To the everlasting credit of most of the Catholic clergy, nearly all of them, not quite all, refused to swear this oath. They figured their loyalty was to Jesus Christ and as Catholics as they saw it via the Pope. Uh, and therefore they could not swear their loyalty in good conscience to a new national government, particularly one which did not claim in any shape or form to represent Christ, but which regarded Christ and his church as being irrelevant. Well, the new powers didn't like this very much. And so, over the next years, some 2,000 Roman Catholic priests were cruelly slaughtered by the French Revolution that this new American stamp wants to celebrate as a good thing. In the next couple of decades, some two and a half million Frenchmen were slaughtered. Two and a half million, which was a huge hunk of the population of France at that time. Before the French Revolution, as I say, France was 80% nominally Roman Catholic, 20% nominally Presbyterian and 0% nominally atheist or agnostic. After the French Revolution, say round about 1800, France had, or rather, let me say, in uh, as late as World War II, France then had 50 million people, of whom 1 million were Protestants, 8 million were Roman Catholics, and some 41 million churchless. That is the aftermath of the French Revolution in France. And I may add one last thing, that Roman Catholicism was stronger in France than in any other country on earth, including Italy, before the French Revolution. And after that, Romanism has been relatively powerless in France ever since. Now, the nuns didn't fare much better. Many of them were raped just for the sport. Notre Dame Cathedral was invaded by these thugs, these hooligans, where the women uh, revolutionists stripped off their blouses, exposing their breasts. The men dropped their pants down. And as an act of revolutionary dedication, they openly fornicated in the aisles of Notre Dame until the whole place stank like a stable. Uh, I would hope that this is not one of the deeds that the U.S. stamp in favor of the French Revolution uh, is uh, celebrating. But you see, those who don't understand or study history, it seems to me, are doomed to repeat it. Meantime, things really did go from bad to worse. The king was not uh, obliterated immediately, by the way. The revolution was in power for about two years before the king who tried his best to work with the new powers finally said, I, I just cannot work with these people. And he said to his wife, Mary Antoinette and their, and their family, we'd better get out of France. We'd better abandon our beloved country. And so they got in a coach, as some of you know, and they almost made it to the border 
They got to within less than 50 miles from the border, and then the coach was opened, and the king, uh, who was a nice fellow, but an ineffectual ruler, he preferred cobbling and mending shoes to ruling as a king, unlike his dad and his granddad. He was stupid enough to take out a coin and to give it to someone for holding a horse. And immediately the person who received the coin looked at the head on the coin and saw it was the same as the fellow in the coach, and he said, it's them! And they grabbed them and hauled them back to Paris, gave them a, to put it in Australian language, a kangaroo court trial, and um, did away with them. Uh, the most swinish, scummish thing that the French revolutionists ever did, I think, was to rip uh, the prince and princess of France away from their mother and got them, the little children, to denounce their own mother, which uh, was not a nice thing to do. Anyway, we can go over that very quickly and reach the point now where the king is executed by guillotine. Most of the aristocrats have either been guillotined or fled to other countries, and France is now officially proclaimed a republic, so a new change of government. Unfortunately, a republic very unlike the American Republic and very like the People's Republics of Eastern Europe, which are the daughters and granddaughters of the French Revolution, according to Lenin, by the way. So it was that especially from 1792-93 onward for a couple of years, the reign of terror was instituted in France, where France became hell on earth, particularly under the leadership of the great Robespierre, uh, a disciple of Rousseau. Now, Robespierre wanted to achieve two things. Number one, he wanted to totally radicalize, uh, to totally communize uh, the government of France and uh, under his leadership, if, as is reputed, Louis XIV had said, l'état, l'état c'est moi, the state, I am the state, Robespierre found himself saying, the people, I am the people. I don't, do not represent the people, but what I think, that is what the people want. Right? Um, and the second aim of revolutionary France in the reign of terror under Robespierre in the early 1790s was to export the revolution, especially throughout Western Europe, all the way from Denmark in the north to Portugal in the south at least. And there were all kinds of secret societies and secret agents scurrying backwards and forwards out of France to export these wonderful new ideas of liberty, fraternity, and equality outside of Jesus Christ. Well, I already said this is the first time in a thousand years that any European government had stated that it was not Christian in any way, not even lip service to Christianity. As a matter of fact, at this point, the government became decidedly anti-Christian. It made it a crime for any parents to give a Christian name to their child. It abolished the word Sunday uh, from the week so that people would not be reminded on the first of every week of the resurrection of Jesus Christ uh, from the dead. And uh, finally, they uh, got hold of one of the worst prostitutes in Paris, put her on a throne, 
carried her through the streets into Notre Dame Cathedral and put a big placard on her calling her Lady Reason. In other words, it's reasonable to be a prostitute. This is to replace the Virgin Mary, I suppose. And so they all bowed down and scraped before this prostitute as the new god, which they said was reason. Fortunately, in the blessed providence of Almighty God, there was a corporal in the French army, a man called Napoleon. Now, I want to go on record of saying that Napoleon is a much misunderstood person. There are many things Napoleon stood for that I am against. I do agree with his final conclusion in exile, and that is that all the armies that have ever marched, and all the kings and emperors and dictators that have ever ruled, have not been able to influence the life of man on this planet as much as did Jesus Christ. Uh, but, had I been a Frenchman... Uh, back in 1796, I would have followed Napoleon to annihilate the scum of the earth that were then ruining my country and threatening to ruin the whole of Western Europe. Okay, and fortunately, Napoleon got the clout to do that. And what helped him was a, a power struggle uh, within the leaders of the reign of terror themselves. Although Robespierre at first was, famely in, uh, was firmly in the saddle, he had competitors. One was Marat. Marat was murdered in his bath, some say, by agents of Robespierre. And then there was um, um, Robespierre's right-hand man, Danton, and he was liquidated. And uh, people wonder why Robespierre had Danton liquidated. And, of course, those who live by the sword shall die by the sword. And so a cartel of revolutionists was started against Robespierre, and he was rubbed out with 70 of his supporters. And then, for a very short time, power passed to two men, Babu, B-A-B-E-U-F, and Buonarroti, who were revolutionists from the word one. If you read the writings of Marx, and Engels and Lenin, you will see that they say these two gentlemen were communists. And they attempted to establish uh, what we would today call uh, a communist government in France in 1795-96. Uh, Fortunately, there was resistance to this within the army, and Corporal Napoleon seized power and became General Napoleon and liquidated these elements. Thank God for Napoleon. However, what was left of these radical French revolutionary leaders, and Napoleon set up the first French empire, and of course later he tried to send his cousin, was it not, uh, uh, to become emperor of Mexico, but that's another story further down the line, getting into American history, which we need not look at right now. Now, although he smashed the radicalizing, communizing government of France and brought some law and order there and immediately invaded Holland and other countries chiefly to delouse the effects of the French Revolution in those countries but then later to try and himself ex expand his own empire all over Europe until he was defeated in Waterloo by the British and the Prussians and the Austrians um, Napoleon was used by God to bring order into the situation. 
but what was left of these defeated communist revolutionists in France went underground. Now, here the story is difficult to follow. Certainly some of them got into Italy and became the Carbonari or the charcoal burners and they stirred up through Italian Freemasonry people like Garibaldi finally to destroy the Italian monarchy in the 1860s. But uh, what's of great interest to me is that uh, a very bad group of revolutionists re-emerged in Paris round about 1840 particularly a group known as the Société du Saison, the Society of the Seasons. And it was these people who turned into communists first, Moses Hess, who got hold of a young German called Friedrich Engels and made him a communist, who got hold of Karl Marx and made him a communist. And then these three guys... Moses Hess, the apostate son of a rabbi who had repudiated Judaism, become an atheist, become a communist, uh, and his protégés, Engels and Marx, the three of them worked on the Communist Manifesto and on the German ideology until later in the 1870s, Moses Hess became more interested in national socialism for the Jews only uh, rather than an international socialism and he started sending left-wing communist elements, mostly Jews, to Palestine to start the first kibbutzes, which, by the way, practiced community of women and community of property. Thank God today they've become de-radicalized, or nearly all of them anyway. But that too is another story. Uh, what was then left became the Communist International, the first international from about 1848, until 1870 uh, in alliance with the anarchists such as Mikhail Bakunin and then there was a row between those communist leaders and Bakunin and then the thing re-emerged in Russia particularly under the leadership of Lenin but also elements before Lenin and he as a Bolshevik entered into alliance with the, with the Mensheviks uh, until we reached that classic date 1905 when the Russian Social Democratic Labour Party had to figure out where it was going from there, living under czarism. And as you probably all know, it was at this time that Lenin wrote his classic statement, Can Jacobinism Frighten the Working Class? In which he admitted that he was trying to continue now in Russia the very things that the radical wing of the French Revolution had brought to pass in France in 1789 until about 1794 or 5. Um, well, the rest of the history, you, doubt, you, you, you no doubt know. Uh, Russia uh, adopted parliamentary government in a big way around about 1906. The first Duma, by the time the fourth Duma sat in... Um, 1916 things were going very badly for Russia in the war against Germany. Germany was financing Lenin who was stashed away in Switzerland at the time to try and bring about a fall of the Tsarist government and sent him with a lot of gold uh, taken from New York by Trotsky <laughs> on the sealed train to the Finland border and that's what financed the successful communist revolution in Russia uh, and brought down the Tsarist regime and then, after many hard years of struggle, during which time, please note, 
Lenin, who is now in the driver's seat in Russia, did not hesitate to utilize American capitalist money and investment to drag that primitive country up into some sort of a productive shape, same way as is likely to happen all over again now in Eastern Europe uh, and in, uh, in Russia today, now that they're in the doldrums again, uh, the capitalists are so stupid they will sell us the rope with which we will later hang them, <laughs> said Lenin. Uh, but those who will not learn from history are doomed to repeat it because, you see, Henry Ford was wrong when he said history is bunk. Okay, you've been very patient with me. I guess that is an appropriate place to stop, but I do put it to you, ladies and gentlemen, that it is very inappropriate for the world's leading anti-communist country, the United States of America, to issue one of its own stamps celebrating such an ungodly, devastating event such as the French Revolution. Because, frankly, if there had been no French Revolution, there would have been no Russian Revolution. And if there had been no Russian Revolution, I think you'll agree with me, the world would be in a lot better shape than it is today. Thank you for listening. If there are any questions, I'll try and field them. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. 
when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.